composing the body-mind at this moment. It's being aware of the the way it is. So when I when I compose my body-mind, uh, brings into attention the, the body, the posture, breath, sound of silence. Also reflects kind of mental state, mood. And then just noticing, bringing, allowing consciousness to be the mirror for the whatever is happening in terms of the conditioned uh, conditioning that's happening at this moment. Then to uh, the the um, Hearing, listening, the sense of opening, receiving this moment for what it is. So this also reflects you know, kind of any any uh, efforts, we, things we're trying to get or control or get rid of, not as in any judgmental way, but just noticing the kind of compulsive habit tendencies to, you know, that we, we operate from. Any negativity, any doubt, any pleasant, unpleasant experiences of the present are just received. So this... Uh, Conditioned realm is all about change, and the extremities of sensory experience, mental experience, pleasure, pain, happiness, suffering, depression, negativity of any sort, doubts, worries, sense of a self. <coughs> And in uh, reflecting in this way, it's, it's uh, we can just to to use this sense of yourself, me as a, as this person, this physical form, uh, just to listen to it, to be aware of of habitual holding patterns, a way of uh, I maybe never question. This uh, and maybe an unconscious or an assumed sense of me, me doing this, me being somebody who has to get something or do something. Like in uh, conforming to um, 
monastic discipline or the forms that we're using, the structure. Uh, well, these uh, these conventions <coughs> they also bring up the strong sense of self because uh, you know the unawakened mind tends to grasp and hold to the structures, the hierarchy, the ideals. That we that we value or hold is sacred. <coughs> so, and then this is to to have this sense of <coughs> awareness of that sense of me being anything at all, or even even the perception of me being nothing, nobody. is like this. Like self-consciousness is a, you know, this, this is a habit of the mind through ignorance to be, to have this uh, identity with the five khandhas and, and then to uh, operate from that, my position, my sense of my values, my rights. And so in, in this, we, we're just noticing the, the, what we're doing. It's also an ideal not to cling to anything. We can easily grasp the, the ideal of non-attachment. So it's not a matter of of uh, trying to become someone who's not attached to anything, but to to uh, kind of zero in on the experience of attachment, of identity. It's what is it, you know, in terms of experience now? So you you're you're getting to know the cause, this very source of suffering, but not judging it, but recognizing it. This is the, the Buddha seeing the Dhamma, knowing the, the truth of the way it is. And that's enough. This, it's not a matter of, of uh, anything you have to do about it, but just recognize it's this way. Like desire, the dunha, uh, before you can really appreciate and recognize desirelessness, you, you need to recognize what desire is. And so it's uh, in the second noble truth, the the attachment out of ignorance to gamma dhanha, power dhanha, vipava dhanha. It's very uh, clearly spelled out. The, the dhanha in, in its grosser or subtle forms. To recognize it, to know desire is like this. 
this kind of this movement, this energy that always is trying to get something, control something. Uh, it can be compulsive kind of habits of the mind. It's feeling there's something I've got to get, I've got to become. I've got to meditate in, in order to get something from it. So then, just beginning to, to really know desire, see desire is something to really take an interest in. So you, you know what it is in, in all its, in its very obvious forms or its subtle ones. Like gamma dunha is quite obvious, isn't it? Just sense desires and seeing or hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, wanting the the pleasurable, seeking happiness through through the senses, because it's you know we like beauty and pleasure, sensual pleasure, these are likable, desirable, pleasurable experiences. And then the, the opposite desire to, to uh, then, you know, to avoid any unpleasantness, get rid of pain or negativity. Now, bhavadana is uh, oftentimes has an appearance of being righteous, so it it's easy to to operate from bhavadana, desire to become. And so, this this this, uh, but to to not analyze it, but recognize the kind of compulsions, uh, the maybe unacknowledged or unrecognized movements that we have in the mind to got to get something, you know, attain something, prove something through, uh, you know, through being good, through being uh, industrious, dedicated, all these uh, righteous uh, attitudes. And then the desire to get rid of things, vipavadana. Now in the reflective mode, it's, uh, it's this receptacle, unlimited receptacle for receiving desires, are, they arise and cease. They have, they aren't permanent. If we attach to desire, then we become that way. We limit ourselves to that and and operate from from righteous intentions, from good intentions, from uh, you know logical analysis. We can uh, we can justify annihilation, getting rid of destroying the evil forces. 
because it seems right and there shouldn't be the shouldn't be like this I shouldn't feel this way the world shouldn't be the way it is and of course uh, you're right <laughs> on that level isn't it in terms of right and wrong harming others uh, stealing, lying, irresponsible, selfish behavior, negativity, and all the rest are, we can easily condemn as, as being wrong. <coughs> and of course we're right. So this righteousness is easily a state of mind that uh, especially people in religious uh, practices easily are... Uh, believe in because they don't you know they 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 feel a sense of being right and what they're doing and my side is is the right side and the other's wrong <coughs> so that's you know when we get into that then we we feel justified and and we can uh, you know support our intentions with uh, righteous attitudes and proof from the scriptures or the bible or whatever <coughs> so meditation this this awareness then is the is this unlimited immeasurable reflection on these tendencies, these movements of the mind. And subtle and, and assumed attitudes that we tend to operate from is our modus operandi if, we, if we're not aware and awakened to that uh, for what it is. So I remember, you know, going through a phase years ago before coming to England of, <coughs> of examining because I always had this feeling of a uh, very strong sense of righteousness and uh, yet I, I could get quite high feeling that you're right and being indignant about the stupidity and wrongness of the world around or other people was quite energizing, quite ec ecstatic to feel indignant, righteously indignant. And, and of course, I could justify this because I know what should be and what shouldn't be. <coughs> but then in trusting in the awareness, uh, you know, this, this sense of me being right is this a peaceful state you know is this is this something I want to uh, perpetuate in my life is this what I want to become is a righteous monk <coughs> and then uh, just seeing the just recognizing this feeling uh, is not peaceful even though it can be very powerful.
So noticing the space around righteousness and this, uh, this sound of silence, this perspective that you get from this empty state of just uh, awareness, sati sampachanya, is this way, resting in this, uh, in this natural state of awareness, you know, then the, the feeling of me being right is, is seen in perspective, is recognized. It's not the position that I'm out of clinging that I'm operating from, but I'm, I'm not trying to get rid of it either, just recognizing it. And seeing, just reflecting in this way, the, the, the way it limits me, how easily I can get propelled if, if as soon as I grasp the sense of my righteousness, then, I, then the, everything follows accordingly, the whole pattern of, of uh, thoughts, memories, emotional reactions to that. Uh, they get set into motion. But if I just recognize this feeling, without judgment, in this space, in this emptiness, in this stillness, then it is what it is. And by allowing it to be what it is, it, it will naturally cease. And then to, to recognize this, the, the cessation of a condition, its absence, So the discerning, discernment then is, is operating. And, and this uh, ability to, to know the conditioned as a condition. The, the sense of righteousness in being right is not that it's wrong, but attachment to that is the cause of the suffering get you nowhere just to, to fumble around with, you know, is being right wrong, and then you get, you get caught up into this confusion. <clears throat> so that's why it's not judging, uh, you know, uh, analyzing it, but recognizing that we're actually experiencing the sensory world, the emotional world, the, the, this is part of our experience in at this moment not a matter of of uh, judging it but recognizing it and then what is it that can recognize that discerns condition phenomena and so the age old question people what who is it that knows or who you know trying to this, this, uh, oftentimes the group people ask me, well, what is it that's aware? Who is it that's aware? We want, we want to name it as, you know, have a label, have it, have it defined. And of course this is back into the realm of wanting to perceive it as a thing rather than trusting Letting go of that very desire to know it, to just be it. Uh, this, uh, this, 
pray, uh, you know, really uh, discerning the the peace, the stillness that is that can discern the conditions, the desires, the presence and the absence of desire, clinging like upatana. It's uh, attachment. What is what is that? You know that when we talk about attachment, clinging, or the Pali word upadana, and when there's non-clinging, what is it like? So the discerning, the, the, the what clinging is like. You know, first I had to to recognize the the, the clinging aspect in order to to uh, understand that, to know that, and then through recognizing that, then the the clinging actually disappears. The upadana drops away. <coughs> And then the discerning of no desirelessness or non-attachment is like this. And th so the, the, this, the path then, then appears, you know, this, this is the way, this non-attachment, non-clinging, desirelessness is like this. And the insight developing this Cultivating this way of non-attachment arises, insight. So we call that jnana dasana or insight knowledge. <coughs> and it's not based on logical reason, it's, it's, uh, it's through intuition through this natural ability that we are resting in of being here and now, non-attachment, desirelessness, emptiness, non-self, nibbana, all these, these words are pointing at that reality. Now, in uh, learning to, this is a, to, this is budgetang, meaning it's to be experienced individually. So we, you know, when we start <coughs> even identifying with our practice, you know, this sound of silence, we can, we can, I really, uh, this is really my practice, and I'm developing this, and like what Ajahn Sumedho teaches, and so forth, and we can form an identity, and then uh, even attach to the idea that we're we're doing this, and then and then uh, kind of look down our nose at those that don't, and we feel aren't as don't quite get it, or can't, don't recognize the sound of silence and so forth. So we, 
we create an, another attachment. So these are the subtleties of grasping the the words, the instructions, the scriptural teachings, the the uh, the conditions of expression, and then it becomes another another uh, obstacle, just the grasping. So this emptiness is is of course not nobody. There's nothing there. So it's, uh, it's not an attainment, and there's no nobody there to feel that they're, you know, they've got hold of anything or they, they understand better than somebody else. And so when we live in a community to kind of evaluate who, who's got it, who hasn't, who understands, who doesn't, who's right, who's wrong, we're back into that whole realm again of, of the ego, of the Sakya Ditti. Now the 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 reality of non-attachment is is uh, is like not knowing anything, and this emotionally can be very uncomfortable for us because the the desire to know and understand is, is uh, very strong, you know, to have that certitude of of uh, certainty, this kind of confirmation of this is the right view, this is the right way to do it, this is, and, and you know, you have to do this in, in order to be right. And the, uh, the this is, uh, you know, the, we're looking for uh, something to grasp because on the emotional level we we might feel very ill at ease uh, this not knowing like being nobody not knowing anything so in uh, Wichikicha or the, the third fetter there's doubt and if you really explore doubt, uh, you begin to see it, it's, it's through thinking, grasping thoughts and ideas. You know, when, when you're not thinking, uh, doubt uh, it doesn't arise, but doubt always arises. Am I doing this the right way? Is this the, this the sound of silence? Is this the path? Is this right or wrong, whatever, then the, is, is this really Dhamma? Is this really Buddhism? Am I capable and so forth? And then the, uh, this is, puts us into this state of not being sure of, of what we're doing, of where we're going. And, uh, and on a personal level, this can be very painful and uncomfortable. 
So in in the in exploring the better of wichikicha or Tao, just to, to uh, recognize how we create it. Actually, doubt it does uh, even you know if you look at the, trying to solve find the answer, solve the problem. Uh, when you don't know the answer, the problem, there's a, this state of doubt. And actually, if you really open to that state of not knowing, recognizing it, you can, you know, it's quite empty. There's, there's a, you can see the kind of struggle to want an answer or a solution. So, uh, encouraging you to to recognize a state of not knowing anything, of being doubt-ridden, uncertain, is like this. Not knowing if you're doing it right, or if you, if you can do it, if you're capable, or whether the way we're doing it is right or wrong, or whether this is real Dhamma or not, or pure Theravada or not, or Ajahn Chah's method or teaching or not, is to recognize this, open to this state of uncertainty, not knowing. And this is uh, uh, my actual vehicle from, from year, for years, in, uh, right from the beginning almost, uh, before I even met Ajahn Chah, I became aware of this, this uh, incredible desire to know and figure everything out, understand Buddhism, and to uh, figure it out and have, have it all clearly uh, codified and set down in, you know, with certainty on the uh, intellectual plane. Then in uh, being caught in that trap, you know, uh, trying to figure out how to get out of the trap of, of, of this doubt and the limitation of attachment, even though I had the, an insight into uh, should be, the causes of suffering should be let go of, then I tried to figure out how to let go of things. How can I let go of desire? How do I stop thinking? And I used to go around in circles. They cause the insights to stop thinking. And how do you do it? How do I? How can I stop thinking? And and then uh, just stop thinking. Well, how do you do that? So you go kind of caught in this. The answer would always come up. Just do it. But how do you just do it? So the, you know, if one keeps listening to this struggle within, then eventually the, the penny drops, as they say, say, this is it. You know, you, you, you can only keep doing that. How do you stop 
thinking, just stop. How, how do you just stop? Just stop. And how do you just stop? Just it goes into. It's stuck there like broken record. So it's rather than than uh, asking and trying to figure out how to do it, just trust in the awareness of that of that pattern of thought that keeps creating the doubt. So that's like a, a quantum leap, really. It's a, a movement out of the, the, the world of conditionality into the unconditioned. And, and you can't grasp that. You know, it's not something that you can, can objectify. You can only be that. How do you just be that? <laughs> So, when I reflect on, like, Sakyaditi definitely is, uh, you know, to me, when I use that word, I see that as the conditioned self, my personality. I get to know my personality. I listen to it. And whether it's intelligent or stupid or right or wrong or wonderful or nasty or whatever, it's not, you know, because just learning to, to know that Sakya Ditti is just this way, and it can be, one can have intelligent, reasonable thoughts, compassionate ones, grand ones, majestic ones, mean, selfish, nasty, evil, vile, dreary, dull, stupid, the whole gamut of conditions can arise in the mind. And the, uh, the personality, because the, these conditions depend on, on uh, ignorance and, and identity. <coughs> so you, that which is not ignorant or identified with anything is we we recognize this through awareness of the conditions themselves. So just you know, really explore this in yourself. What is what is this sense of me and mine, my personality? You know, and the uh, on all levels, whether you know how you're feeling. If you're feeling grand, magnanimous, full of compassion, love for all creatures, or you're feeling mean, nasty, and selfish, or bored, or fed up. I listen to it. I used to listen to my myself, you know, in, in Thailand, in, uh, with Ajahn Chah, where, where I had to go to all these meetings, these pujas, and, and Ajahn Chah would give very long day sinas in the evening, you know, sometimes last till midnight. And you're sitting there not understanding anything and learn the language yet. Uh, 
this feeling fed up and angry and uh, you know and then that, that those kind of feelings would generate into uh, you know anger and resentment towards Ajahn Chah and all my critical faculties would be set going you know so I start looking at the other monks and feeling aversion and be critical of them and, and the conditions, uh, the whole scene, fed up. But also, I started listening to, to this sense. I'm fed up. I'm going to leave. I'm not going to put up with this. They can't make me do this. It's a waste of time. Uh, on and on. Like then my personality would go into a kind of tirade. <clears throat> and then, uh, but getting that perspective of listening rather than believing or or feeling guilty, then I shouldn't shouldn't feel these thoughts. You know, there's if I'm a good monk and trying to to sp talk from the more idealistic side about how I should be grateful and and uh, it'll just take time when I once I learn the language and and kind of fit in better and understand, but then I'll really appreciate this. I can be very reasonable about it all. I can be extremely reasonable, but there's also, but that uh, tends to, you know, underlying that is also the resentment and resistance. Thinking I'm, it's not fair and it's a waste of time and I'm fed up. So by listening to you know, the Sakya Ditti, I ask myself, what is it that is aware of this? That my myself, my personality, is saying I'm fed up, but I'm I'm finished. This is this is the end. I'm not going to take any more of this. It go on, kind of screaming sometimes inside, and then then I noticed that I could stand it. You know, I was standing it right then. And yet my mind was saying, can't stand it anymore, fed up. I'm just noticing, well, I'm standing it, aren't I? This is bearable. And, and just recognizing that, that the, the, the conditioned personality, you know, you can't believe it. it you know, it's just reactiveness doing something I don't want to do having to endure uh, uh, this feeling of you know it's painful to sit that long in the, in the and you have to sit in the, uh, the Thai polite posture which I found excruciating at first so on a reasonable level I could have oh, every justified reason to to uh, feel the way I did, you know, it wasn't fair. I'm, a, you know, I'm not used to this. I'm don't understand. It all seems reasonable. Why can't Ajahn Chah understand how painful it is and how difficult? Why does he insist? And I, you know, I feel very right. Felt very right about that. 
But then I could began to, as I began to trust the awareness more, I could see this, this, this thing in me that, you know, had haunted me all my life. Just these attitudes of self-centered attitudes, uh, you know, justifying my feelings and, and blaming others and And how limit and and the limitations that I always put on my life, how you know because i I believed in in what my emotions were saying, I tended to to just repeat the same mistakes over and over again, because I had you know a reasonable enough sensible enough reason. so Ajahn Chah's unreasonableness. You know, I began to get in touch with, began to recognize this space that is aware of this feeling of it's not fair, I'm fed up. Well, that's quite a, a leap, isn't it? Because when you when you're in those situations at the time, you, you know it's one gets so involved, so committed to to one's feelings, especially if you feel you're right and the others are wrong, that it's it's just uh, hard to get any perspective on it, hard to to see it because you so you believe it so much and you, you know you're right. Now in the exploration then, the, the, um, so I began to really listen to this in myself, a kind of grumbling, complaining mind that, I, uh, that was very much part of my personality. <coughs> and then, you know, in my background, you, you see it in all kind of, uh, especially in affluent uh, societies, high level of grumbling and complaining goes on. <coughs> so, I mean, I'm in the military, for I was four years in the Navy, and, uh, and there's just nothing but grumbling. Four years of listening to myself and everyone else complaining. And then you look at, you know, in the military situation, I was at a, you know, at a time when there was no war, there's a, the, right at the end of the Korean War, uh, that I went into the military. And so the Korean War ended, and I never had to see any battles or anything, and the rest of the time there's nothing much happening, you know, in terms of the United States being at war with anybody. So it was during a time of peace. And and in military life, of course, there's a lot to complain about. You know, a lot just uh, you know, it's a it isn't a, a sensitive organization that that uh, is interested in the emotional, psychological welfare of its members. And you just you know obey rules and try to get away with things. So 
So there is an awful lot to complain about. But just noticing the, the, the effect of four years of living in this kind of moaning, grumbling society, it had quite a strong effect, you know, conditioning the mind. And the, um, and yet when I actually look, I mean when I, if I started to look at the good side of military life, I mean you had everything was, you were taken care of everywhere, fed, clothed, you had the shelter, you paid money, you had a wage, and <coughs> you know it wasn't all bad. It was there was certain, it gave a lot of security, you know, kind of economic security to be in a situation where everything is kind of given to you. And it didn't demand a lot. I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't the kind of life that would tend to bring out your finer qualities. You learned how to survive was mainly what we did, survive within the system. And so the, the general attitude wasn't based on kind of patriotic idealism or or feeling that we're we've commit I've committed myself to a to a fine organization and and operate from from a kind of inspired state that would make me sacrifice and try to do the very best, bring out my best qualities. What it was like this total security system was presented just this the the kind of the when if you're caught in the grumbling state of mind, then you you just live in that world, and whatever they do, it's not good enough, and and you always take the the negative interpretation. So you learn how to survive, get by, as best you can <coughs> within the system. And there's no reflection on it at all. It was merely just learning to to get, you know, to to survive uh, and not get caught and to uh, doing something wrong and to, uh, you know, be caught in your resentment uh, towards the the oppressive what you felt were the conditions that bound and limited and oppressed you at the time. <coughs> then modern society too, you know, the, the, uh, in university we're always complaining about this, the system, the government, the politics. So this this was highly developed. This this uh, this grumbling, complaining, critical mind, and, and the kind of low level of just you know just living in a realm of of this grumbling state, complaining mind. And of course, when I became a monk, this you know I was inspired and had you know had a you know, an attraction to monastic life. <coughs> but also within, because you're caught in another structure, in, rather than a military one, a monastic one. 
and it was even more kind of severe than the military. At least in the in the Navy, I mean, you could go out and drink and carouse and have a lot of fun, forget all about it. But when it, once you're in the monastic system, you c can't drink anymore and celibate, and you have no no holidays from it. You can't put on lay clothes and go out on the weekend. So it's an ongoing, <laughs> ongoing, uh, you know, ongoing experience of living within a structure. And of course, the big, the the condition of the mind was, of course, grumbling. But then the the insight into that, I began to just notice how how difficult I made my monastic life when I just grumbled about it. And of course, at that time, you know, I didn't no one to talk to, nobody could speak English. And the few times I did grumble to to Thai monks about the life, then they'd go and tell Ajahn Chah, and then I'd. I'd be uh, kind of humiliated, felt humiliated. <coughs> so I figured out, well, I'll just have to, you know, I won't dare, you know, tell anybody. I'll just, you know, there's nobody, I have no friends, nobody to talk to, just, just keep it inward. But in doing that also, I began to get perspective on it. That this grumbling was uh, was not, you know, not a peaceful way to live. And then the the uh, reflections and the, the way of meditation, the the structure that I was using, wasn't one of just you know carrot and stick, reward and punishment uh, conformity, but its actual aim was to you know, encourage awareness. So I began to listen to this grumbling, this habitual grumbling, complaining mind. And I, I would bring it up into consciousness. I really deliberately grumbled to myself about everything, you know, carry it to absurdity. I'm saying, oh, the food is terrible, I can't stand the, these curries, and just, uh, why can't they get something else, and why... And just, you know, really think it out with listening, with the sense of listening to this, this grumbling uh, habit. And then I began to, to notice how, you know, how miserable I was when I did this. I could just, you know, just go on and on and on and, and everything that happened and end up grumbling about it. <coughs> on the... On the observance days, you know, they had people, a lot of people would come and uh, so then I'd start grumbling about too many people uh, here and um, we have to sit up all night till dawn and grumble about that, grumble about, you know, the way the monks were or whatever, just endlessly, you know, just go on. And But I'd be listening to it. I'd really int intentionally grumble, but with the 
uh, with the intention of listening rather than believing it, rather than just being lost in it. When I could see it from that perspective, by really uh, intentionally, purposely grumbling, but listening to it, I, I began to see uh, the kind of dreariness of my life was just self-created. That I just, you know, just was was caught in a in a in a negative state that that was very unpleasant. But it wasn't caused by any external forces. It was me. It was me creating this through thinking, through complaining, through not wanting it like this or not liking it, <coughs> thinking it could be, you know, how it could be better, how it should be. So I had insight into deliberate thinking and to deliberately think things out, but with with not for not for a logical analytical reason, but just to have perspective on my the sakyaditi of my life. And that gave me a lot. What is it that is aware of this grumbling? And just by asking that question, the awareness, you know, that I'm certainly there's certainly awareness, and then the, the I'm I'm gr deliberately grumbling internally, listening to this. What is it that's aware? So exploring the this asking this question: What is it, or who is it that's aware of grumbling? And then it would kind of stop the thinking mind, put me in a kind of non-plussed state. What, what is it that's aware? The grumbling is a created thing. And so that, that's kind of like inquiry into the self. What is it that's aware? First I use who is it that's aware? Because there's still a strong sense of uh, being some somebody or some person listening. But after a while, it, the who didn't make any sense at all. And there was what, what is it that's aware? And more and more the awareness I recognize is, you know, it, it, isn't, it isn't negative or grumbling, but the conditions that, uh, that it's aware of are negative and unpleasant. <coughs> so then I, uh, well, what do, what do I want to be? I want to be this grumbling person or this awareness? Of course, the answer is obvious. I didn't want to spend my whole life just grumbling, complaining about life, being reborn endlessly as some kind of grumpy person complaining and picking apart everything. Well, it's a kind of unpleasant, you know, way to live. My father was a real grumbler, complaining, cantankerous old man. But his life grumbling. Uh, I don't want to end up like my father. 
So they, they then by questioning, exploring this, then I, I, uh, I began to you know really trust more in this awareness. <coughs> Where it was easy to to you know come from the ideal position that I should be grateful and shouldn't grumble, which is r- true. You know it's right. The the good monk, the bhikkhu, the the disciple of the Buddha, uh, full of loving kindness, patience. Yeah. I knew all that too, and and that I, I you know I certainly like that as an ideal. Would like to be like, would want to be like that. This 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 uh, enlightened, pure-hearted, uh, wonderful bhikkhu. So then, because of that, then you say, I shouldn't, shouldn't grumble, I shouldn't feel like this. And, and so you get caught into this, into this battle with yourself, uh, being guilty or, or, you know, not, you, that you're not a very nice person, that you're not a really good monk. You're, you don't deserve your alms food. And, and so forth, you get into into uh, you know attacking this grumbling thing and uh, saying I shouldn't shouldn't feel like this I'm wrong I'm bad for being like this <coughs> so uh, you notice that what oftentimes psycho- psychologically called super ego this this kind of uh, sense of how you should be coming from the top you know from the ideal of being the good monk, the grateful disciple, the the kind, generous, uh, uh, wonderful kind of bhikkhu that I could, you know, was the ideal, which was a very rational idealism, you know, comes from from the intellect. And then, with the emotional world, the realities of actually what I was feeling emotionally wasn't, you know, <coughs> oftentimes, you know, seemed, you know, the total opposite. There was nothing wonderful, magnanimous, compassionate, grand about it. It was just me, 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 and I don't like this, and I don't want to do that, and I resent this, and... So, then, of course, the the uh, this grand superego would was very critical, you know, that you shouldn't think like that, you shouldn't be like, you shouldn't feel these thoughts. <coughs> You're not a good monk. You don't deserve your alms food today. You <laughs> and a real tyrant, you know, full of called righteousness and and an endless kind of. Uh, uh, criticisms of this this other side, this emotional wreck, <coughs> or you think of yourself as uh, you know you see a lot of your emotions are very immature. This word immature, you know, childish or foolish. <coughs> so the uh, 
superego, of course, wanted to be mature, you know, grown man, uh, in charge, you know, with, uh, you know, not be having these childish emotional habits going on, you know, like, I found, you know, how if I, you know, how easily I could kind of sulk if I didn't get my way. Not not in any obvious external way, but internally, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd get into these sulky moods, like, like I did when I was a child. Then get, you know, if I asked for something and didn't get it, I didn't get my own way, then I, well, I'm not going to, not going to speak to to that monk again, or, well, you know, and I'd go into a kind of internal sulk, which, which I hoped didn't appear on the on the surface, but I could fully aware of you know how feeling of being hurt or, or um, reactions of, of, you know, of a child in terms of not getting what I wanted. Or the, um, in the uh, just wanting attention or, or whatever, the kind of Demands I would would internal demands and desires of my, my emotional world, kind of inner tantrums. So in in this listening practice, you know, I began to to make to allow these to surface in consciousness, just to listen to them by actually. Um, deliberately bringing them up, you know, when I felt this way, to, to, to really use thought to make it fully conscious of what it's like when I can't get my own way, I feel like this, and it's not fair, and i fed up, and I don't agree, and I'm not going to speak to him anymore, and I think I'll leave, I'll show them, uh, you know, they... They're pretty lucky to have me. I'm the only prapfrung, the only foreign monk here. They're lucky to have me, and and I'm going to go to some other monastery and I listen to all this kind of silliness. So in this way, it, it brought into this uh, this the into consciousness these emotional patterns, and that was also quite liberating because it was so easy for the the intellect to make judgments, you know, that's, that's stupid or childish or <coughs> selfish, these labels, isn't it? Don't be so stupid or childish, you're selfish. It's a good way to intimidate anyone, isn't it? In the Sangha here, we can really intimidate, I can imitate you all, intimidate you by saying you're being selfish. None of us want to be selfish. <laughs> Usually we're quite, you know, quite altruistic when we enter the Sangha. So maybe we try to not be selfish, but we don't understand selfishness in terms of, it, of the, uh, you know, the reality of it when it arises. So in recognizing the, the petty, self-centered, vain, Selfishness, 
it's a it's, it's a way of of letting it go <laughs> you can't just just make yourself unselfish by trying to be to, by trying not to be you know the important thing is to to recognize it in terms of dhamma it's a condition that arises and ceases to know it discern it not judge it not criticize it because then you're back into the intellectual realm again of ideals and what should be and shouldn't be so so you know in the, you can see the conflict that goes on inside an individual isn't it with this war between this very rational sensible intelligent uh, idealistic altruistic intellect and the emotional realities that we live with which can be uh, you know anything and not even you know be very uh, very much very much the opposite so we we tend to feel self disparaging uh, self critical judgmental guilty isn't it what is guilt why do we feel why is guilt such a such a rampant problem in the, in the western world i could feel guilty about anything cuz i could always imagine being better you know responding in a better way or thinking a better thought <coughs> so this uh, in the realm of Vedana Sanya Sankara, getting back to the five khandhas, you know, this bringing this into consciousness, not in this discerning style rather than the critical one. We all agree selfishness is, is uh, you know, is not beautiful and to be self-centered in vain and and uh, react uh, emotionally in childish ways uh, is not, you know, is, it's unpleasant. It's, uh, you can't respect somebody like that. And we all know that. You can't respect yourself, respect somebody else because they're too childish or selfish. And so we, we're afraid of losing respect, you know, we, from others. You know, we, we put a lot of effort into into appearance maybe of looking looking like we wish you know like we think we should covering up hiding pretending acting a role but in uh, meditation this is uh, you know this is this isn't the the point is it it's not to try to pretend you're meditating and you're an arahant sitting here in the temple but it's the opportunity to bring into consciousness the karma that one's experiencing. So this takes a willingness to listen, to receive even uh, your most uh, detested mental states. Because they are what they are, and they arise and cease. They're, you know, it's it's not they're not really the problem, is it? It's the it's the ignorance and the resistance to those negative states. The, maybe the 
the way we've always tried to suppress or, or reject them, resist them. So even stupidity and dullness, you know, on the ego level, I always wanted to see myself as an intelligent person, a man that's intelligent. I didn't want to be considered stupid. And yet, sometimes, you know, one has really stupid thoughts and emotions. But the, these were, you know, I could see in, in, uh, in lay life how I I'd, I'd resisted all that and by, by just suppressing and resisting that and trying to reinforce the sense of myself as being an intelligent uh, person. But in monastic life, in the, as the, uh, through the power of the meditation, <coughs> sometimes some of the mental states were really, you know, dull and quite stupid nonsense, rubbish, crap, foolish. And, and then I began to notice this total resistance to that, you know, be bothered just sitting here and a bunch of rubbish is going on, a bunch of crap. It's just unbearable. I don't, you know, I want to suppress all that. I want to get rid of it so I can get into these nice, blissful, peaceful, tranquil states. So, uh, and then I started contemplating, well, this aversion to these to this. I just don't like to be have these kind of feelings and thoughts. Because on the ego level it makes me think I'm stupid and immature and uh, an idiot. Because only a stupid idiot would ever, you know, think like this, be like this. But then in terms of Dhamma, if, if a condition is stupid and nonsensical and it's still a condition, isn't it? It's still Dhamma, you know, and it's not self. It is what it is, you know, and you don't have to, you know, just labeling it as stupid is, is a judgment. But sometimes, uh, you know, in consciousness, these the dull feelings and, and, and stupid thoughts and memories and, and nonsense and and that will arise because these are these are conditioned phenomena. They're part of of uh, conscious experience, and it's you know this effort to try to always hold on to the the intelligent, reasonable, uh, inspired, idealistic side, and the and the resistance towards this stupid dull, dullness and the and uh, the anger, negative states, that this uh, Manichaean war takes place internally. You know, wipe out those the stupid enemy, the evil forces. It's like genocide in a way. You know, if you get rid of all the inadequate people in your society, you know, have a, quite a euthanasia and things like this. Uh, ones that 
that aren't economically productive or useful in the society, the, the, the idiots, the morons, the degenerates, the perverts, all the rest. You just get rid of them, you know, and just have these wonderful specimens of, you know, being of right, noble manhood, greatness, intelligence, reasonableness. But in meditation, you're breaking down that illusion. Because the Buddha said, you know, conditions arise you know, due to other conditions. So when conditions for, for stupidity and dullness arise, and this is what one is experiencing. So the relationship then is of awareness, you know, put into the context of being this awareness and recognizing the impermanence of conditions, which is a dis which I call discernment or panya. I found this very liberating, actually, because uh, it was really enervating and a kind of hopelessness in my life of just trying to endlessly control the mind, trying to make myself become this ideal, and always failing in some way. I never could be the ideal. You know, at moments I could rise up and be like the ideal, but it couldn't, it was not sustainable for very long. So, you know, one can have heroic moments in one's life where selfishness and stupidity and all the rest are transcended through, through a heroic act, through a grand gesture. <coughs> but to sustain yourself on that level is impossible because that's not the way it is. So instead of feeling threatened by these, these uh, negative forces or being, uh, you know, have feeling them as, as obstructions or looking at them in, in, in a critical way, just by changing the attitude, you know, they're, they're actually liberating when you allow them to be what they are. So it's like through this, this conscious experience, through this form, you know, that, that we actually liberate these forces within us, these, these karmic habits, tendencies, repressed feelings, or assumptions, or ideals or whatever, you know, from the, from the best to the worst, from the attachment to intellectual positions to, to attachment and, or resistance to emotional habits. It gets confusing, doesn't it, in one's life on a personal level because, uh, you know, when you're an adult, it's very confusing to 
to have, be an intelligent, well-educated person and still have such childish uh, emotions in regards to the to experience of life. You know, we get con very confused by these different uh, conditions that, that we're experiencing. So the, the way of transcending the conditions is by embracing them, you know, recognizing them, putting them in that context of the Buddha seeing the Dhamma rather than me, this person with these problems. So I, you know, I really value that, the, the immature reactions or the sulkiness or the self-pity or the uh, resentments or jealousies or, or fears or whatever that, that arise in consciousness. I see, see it now as a liberation rather than as some kind of personal failure. Because all conditioned phenomena is actually takes you to the unconditioned if you allow it. You know, it's not, none of it's an obstruction or shouldn't be or personal. But it is what it is. And so all conditions arise and cease in the unconditioned. So even the most stupid, inane, childish, despicable, degenerate thoughts or emotions, if you're willing to allow them to be what they are, they, they can only take you to the unconditioned. You know, by allowing them, then you're in that. They don't take you there, but they, they help to, you to value this natural state of being. And you you no longer fear or despise the the condition realm. <coughs> so it's not a matter of trying to grow up and become a really good monk and nun and a mature individual with wisdom and all that. It's, it's not trying to operate from the ideal position by trying to act the role or get rid of these... Uh, karmic tendencies, but to understand them in terms of the Four Noble Truths. Understand suffering, the causes, the cessation, the way of non-suffering. Well, the way of non-suffering is the awareness. And as that becomes, as, that, as you trust that more and more, then that, that is the path, the, the Fourth Noble Truth. Just that much awareness. Sati and Panyana. So I'll stop here. <laughs>